Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by and welcome to the Go Easy Fourth Quarter 2020 Financial Results Conference Call. At this time, all participants are on a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press the start and the one key on your touchdown telephone. Please be advised that today's conference may be recorded. If you require offer assistance, please press start and zero. I would like to hand the conference over to your speaker today. Farhan Ali Khan, please go ahead. Thank you, Operator, and good morning, everyone. My name is Farhan Ali Khan, the company's Senior Vice President of Corporate Development and Investor Relations, and thank you for joining us to discuss GoEasy Limited results for the fourth quarter and full year ended December 31st, 2020. The news release, which was issued yesterday after the close of market, is available on Globe Newswire and on the GoEasy website. Today, Jason Mullins, GoEasy's President and Chief Executive Officer, will review the results for the fourth quarter and provide an outlook for the business. Hal Khoury, the company's Chief Financial Officer, will also provide an overview of our capital and liquidity position. Jason Appel, the company's Chief Risk Officer, is also on the call. After the prepared remarks, we will then open the lines for questions from investors. Before we begin, I remind you that this conference call is open to all investors and is being webcast through the company's investor website and supplemented by a quarterly earnings presentation. For those dialing in directly by phone, the presentation can also be found directly on our investor site. All shareholders, analysts, and portfolio managers are welcome to ask questions over the phone after management has finished the prepared remarks. The operator will poll for questions and will provide instructions at the appropriate time. Business media are welcome to listen to this call and to use management's comments and responses to questions in any coverage. However, we would ask that they do not quote callers unless that individual has granted their consent. Today's discussion may contain forward-looking statements. I am not going to read that full statement, but will direct you to the caution regarding forward-looking statements, including the MBNA. I will now turn the call over to Jason Mullins. Thanks, Farhan, and welcome to today's call, everyone. We had a strong finish to 2020 and a year that highlighted the resilience of our customer, our team, and our business model. During the fourth quarter, we continued to experience an improving level of demand for consumer credit as provincial stay-at-home orders remained at more moderate levels through most of the quarter, and typical seasonal trends began to emerge throughout the holidays, further fueled by our integrated media campaign. This step up in overall demand led to an increase in both originations and growth in our loan portfolio. After being down 38% in the second quarter and then flat to 2019 in the third quarter, loan originations in the fourth quarter lifted to a record $334 million, up nearly 7% compared to the same period in 2019. The improvement in loan originations resulted in loan growth of $64 million, bringing our total portfolio at year-end to just shy of $1.25 billion in consumer loans. Our omni-channel business model has allowed us to continue originating and serving customers digitally when regional health and safety protocols limit our in-branch activity. 
As we highlighted last quarter, we have also experienced continued growth in the proportion of new customers being acquired through our point-of-sale channel. Whether through our frictionless, full credit spectrum offering with a firm, formerly Paybright, or directly through our own platform, over 22% of the customers we acquired in the fourth quarter came into the business through financing an in-store or online purchase. Our next generation credit models, which leverage consumer banking data, have also helped us issue over 1,500 loans since September to consumers without qualifying credit files. Serving the new Canadian and student segments is just another way for us to fulfill our purpose of helping those that are unable to access credit from traditional banks. Revenue for the fourth quarter was a record $173 million, an increase of 5% over 2019. As Canada continued to adjust to life in a pandemic, more of our consumers returned to work and the volume of loan protection plan claims wound down further, finishing the year close to pre-COVID levels. As a result, we experienced another sequential lift in the total portfolio yield to 46.6%. As closures and restrictions continue to come and go across various regions and industry sectors, we are leveraging our ability to dynamically adjust our credit tolerance and underwriting practices. As time has passed, this has led to an improving mix in the quality of our originations, which will bode well for the long-term performance of our portfolio. The weighted average credit quality of our customers continues to gradually improve, supported by over 12.5% of the portfolio now being secured. The improving credit mix, combined with a moderate use of the Loan Protection Insurance Program, continued government support, and reduced overall living expenses have contributed to another quarter of strong credit performance. The net charge-off rate for the fourth quarter was 9%, down from 13.3% in the fourth quarter of 2019. As noted earlier, while loan protection continues to act as a resource for some of our customers, claims levels have continued to return to more normal levels. During the second quarter, total loan protection claims payments made on behalf of borrowers was $21.7 million, declining to $14.6 million in the third quarter, which was followed by a further decline in the fourth quarter to $8.1 million. As of year-end, the proportion of insured customers on an active claim was down over 90% from the peak of the pandemic. We are incredibly proud that over the course of 2020, this valuable ancillary product served to help over 15,000 of our customers maintain their credit, with over $50 million in payments having been made on their behalf by the third-party insurer. Consistent with the past few quarters, we have also experienced the proportion of customers utilizing our borrower assistance program, such as payment deferrals or loan extensions, and the payment performance on our loans remain at or better than pre-COVID levels. We believe these trends highlight both the stability of our customers' cash flow in the current environment, as well as the improving credit quality of the portfolio that we are carrying out of this recession. While we have continued to experience improvement in the underlying credit performance of the portfolio, we also acknowledge that there remains uncertainty about another wave of the pandemic, the speed of vaccine distribution, and the timing pace and pace of the economic recovery. As such, we have further refined our use of probability-weighted economic scenarios to determine the appropriate loan loss provision allowance that would barely account for the future expected credit losses under a variety of more stressed circumstances. As a result, our allowance for future credit losses was held broadly flat at 10.08% compared to 10.03% in the previous quarter. 
As the business grows, we continue to benefit from the scale and operating leverage of our platform. Operating income for the fourth quarter was $61.3 million, up 32% from $46.5 million in the fourth quarter of 2019, while the operating margin for the business was 35.4%, up from 28.1% in the prior year. As previously announced, we also completed the sale of our minority equity interest in Paybright, becoming an investor and commercial partner with a firm who is regarded as one of North America's most innovative and consumer-focused buy-now-pay-later platforms. The genesis of this transaction began in September 2019 when we entered into a strategic partnership and made a $34 million investment in Paybright. After several years of exploring and testing a variety of potential prime-focused point-of-sale lending partnerships, we felt Paybright was the platform with the strongest technology, best management team, and greatest potential for future growth. While our investment was fueled by the commercial benefits of offering a second-look non-prime financing offer through their platform, we had confidence in the future value of the company. In December, Paybright announced that its shareholders had reached the definitive agreement to sell 100% of the company's shares to a firm, which subsequently closed on January 1st of this year. Under the terms of the sale, we received consideration of 23 million Canadian in cash, 655,000 common shares in a firm, subject to a customary lockup agreement, and 468,000 common shares held in escrow, subject to revenue performance achieved in 2021 and 2022. After considering the likelihood of achieving the contingent equity, we recorded a total consideration of $56 million as of December 31, 2020, resulting in a total unrealized fair value gain of $21.7 million during the year, of which the impact in the fourth quarter was an after-tax gain of $13.9 million. With an estimated $30 billion of originations occurring at the point of sale for everyday purchases each year, we remain enthusiastic about our partnership and investment in a firm, and we believe we offer the leading frictionless full credit spectrum point of sale payment solution in Canada. In total, net income in the fourth quarter was a record $48.9 million, up from $6.7 million in the same period of 2019, which resulted in diluted earnings per share of $3.14, up from $0.46 cents in the fourth quarter of 2019. Return on equity was 45.8%, up from 8% in the fourth quarter of 2019. After adjusting for the $13.9 million after-tax fair value gain related to the sale of our equity investment in Paybright, and adjusting for the one-time $16 million after-tax charge associated with the refinancing of the company's notes completed in the fourth quarter of 2019, adjusted net income was a record $35 million up 55% from $22.6 million in 2019, resulting in adjusted diluted earnings per share of $2.24, up 55% from $1.45 in the fourth quarter of 2019. Adjusted return on equity was 32.8% in the quarter, up from adjusted return on equity of 27% in 2019. While 2020 was filled with unexpected adversity, our team rose to the challenge and I'm incredibly proud of their efforts. For the full year, we funded just over $1 billion in loan originations, down slightly from $1.1 billion in 2019, despite the significant change in demand driven by the pandemic and better than most of our peer group in North America. Revenue for the full year, which was partially impacted by lower commissions related to higher levels of loan protection insurance claims, was $653 million, up 7% compared with $609 million in the same period of 2019. 
Operating income for the full year was $216 million compared with $169 million in 2019, an increase of $47.6 million, or 28%. Adjusted net income for the full year of 2020 was $118 million, and adjusted diluted earnings per share was $7.57, increases of 47 and 46% compared to the adjusted net income of $80.3 million and adjusted dilutings per share of 517 in 2019. Based on the 2020 adjusted earnings, the increasing level of cash flow produced by the business and the confidence in our continued growth and access to capital going forward, the Board of Directors has approved an increase to the annual dividend from $1.80 per share to $2.64 per share, an increase of 47%. This marks the seventh consecutive year of an increase in the dividend to shareholders. I'll now pass it over to Hal to discuss our balance sheet and capital position before providing some comments on our outlook. Thanks, Jason. During the fourth quarter, we continue to strengthen our balance sheet and liquidity position while currently investing in our business and returning capital to shareholders. To help simplify and highlight the free cash generating capability of our portfolio, we have begun to publish a new non-IFRS measure in our disclosures, which is the cash provided by operating activities before the net growth of the consumer loan portfolio. In essence, this figure represents the amount of free cash we produce each period if we were to hold the loan portfolio flat. From this figure, we can then invest that free cash into incremental growth in consumer loans, invest in new businesses or initiatives, reduce our debt, or return capital to shareholders through dividends or share repurchases. The cash provided by operating activities before the net growth of consumer loans receivable portfolio in the fourth quarter was $40.9 million, an increase of 89% from the $21.7 million in the fourth quarter of 2019. For the full year, the cash generated before net growth was $211 million, an increase of 74% over the $121 million of, in 2019. Looking to our funding, we also made additional enhancements to our balance sheet with the addition of a new securitization facility structured and underwritten by National Bank. The new facility, which will be collateralized by our consumer loans, will have an initial term of three years and interest on advances will be payable at the rate of one-month CEDOR plus 295 basis points. Based on the current one-month CEDOR rate of 0.43% as of December 31, 2020, the interest rate would be 3.38%. As usual, we also intend to establish an interest rate swap agreement to generate fixed rate payments on the amounts we draw in order to mitigate the impact of interest rate volatility at approximately a cost of 26 basis points. Based on the cash at hand at the end of the year and the borrowing capacity under our two revolving facilities, we had approximately 403 million in total liquidity, which we estimate would fund the organic growth of the business through to the third quarter of 2023. Given the cash flows I highlighted earlier, we also estimate that once our existing available sources of capital are fully utilized, we could continue to grow the loan portfolio by approximately $150 million per year solely from internal cash flows. With the launch of securitization, we have also lowered our funding costs. At year-end, our fully drawn weighted average cost of borrowing reduced to 4.8%, down from 5.5% in the prior year, with incremental draws on our revolving credit facilities 
currently bearing rates of approximately 3.6%. As Jason noted earlier, the sale of our minority equity interest and TAVE rate to a firm closed subsequent to year-end, in which we received a combination of cash and shares in a firm, a portion of which are subject to a standard lockup agreement and a portion that are held in escrow subject to PAVE rights revenue performance. In early January, a firm then listed on the NASDAQ exchange and our shares became public equities. It is our common practice that when we have exposure to market volatility, such as currency or interest rate risk, we enter into hedging arrangements. Following the IPO of a firm, we entered into a six-month total return swap agreement substantively hedge our market exposure related to the 655,000 common shares, which represent the non-contingent portion of the equity consideration we received, or approximately 58% of our total investment in a firm. The total return swap effectively results in the economic value for that portion of our shares being settled in cash at maturity for a fixed price of $108.87 U.S. per share, net of applicable fees. As was noted, we continue to remain enthusiastic about our partnership in a firm and the prospective value of our remaining investment. When factoring in the gains recorded in the quarter and the cash produced by the business, we've continued to reduce our leverage position. As at year-end, our net debt-to-net capitalization declined to 64%, comfortably below our target of 70% and the equity on our balance sheet improved to over $444 million. With a lower level of leverage and significant liquidity on hand, our balance sheet remains well-positioned to support our ambitious growth plans. Lastly, as we've previously mentioned, we continue to use a portion of our free cash to invest in repurchasing our shares when we believe that they are below the intrinsic value of our company and can produce an attractive return for our shareholders. During the quarter, we invested approximately $5.5 million to repurchase 80,000 common shares at a weighted average price of $68.44. This brought our total share repurchases year-to-date through our normal course issuer bid to 768,000 shares at a weighted average price of $55.18, or a total of $42 million worth of stock. When compared with the $24 million in dividends paid throughout the year, we returned approximately $66 million in capital to shareholders. I'll now pass the call back over to Jason for some comments on our outlook. Thanks, Hal. We're incredibly proud of the work our team did in 2020, but we continue to believe we are just getting started. It is still early days in the execution of our plan to become the largest and best-performing non-prime lender in our industry. We continue to be guided by the four key pillars of our strategy, including expanding our product range, developing our channels of distribution, increasing our geographic footprint, and delivering a best-in-class customer experience that has helped over 60% of our customers improve their credit score, and one in three graduate to prime credit within 12 months of borrowing from us. While 2020 presents a new round of challenges, as we navigate through the second and possibly third wave of the pandemic, we remain optimistic about the growth prospects in store and the expectation of vaccine distribution and a gradual economic recovery. In our release yesterday evening, we provided a new updated outlook, which contains a forecast for the next three years. During that period, we expect to organically grow the loan portfolio by roughly 60% to approximately 2 billion in 2023. 
In 2021, we expect to finish this year with a consumer loan portfolio of between 1.45 and 1.55 billion by year end. We also plan to reignite our accelerated retail expansion plan with specific focus on the Quebec market and urban centers with the opening of 20 to 25 more locations this year. The total annualized portfolio yield in 2021 is forecast to be between 44 and 46%, then continue to slowly decline over the next several years as we diversify our product range, expand into Quebec, and progressively lower the cost of borrowing for our customers. We are also pleased with the improvements we have made to the credit quality of our business. We expect that as the environment normalizes, the net charge-off rate of the portfolio will be sustainably stronger going forward than it was pre-COVID, with a loss rate of between 10.5% and 12.5% on an annualized basis. The strength of our internal cash generation will lead to a gradual delevering of our balance sheet while the business continues to reap the benefits of scale and the operating margin and corresponding profitability expand. To drive this growth, we will continue to invest in our business. During the year, we will spend approximately 4% of our revenues on marketing and advertising as we aim to build the most well-known and trusted brand in the non-prime lending market. Including our real estate expansion and technology enhancements combined, we will invest approximately $25 million in capital expenditures to strengthen our platform and provide new sources of growth that will help sustain our long track record of performance. We will remain focused on three key strategic initiatives. First, we continue to focus on developing our point-of-sale business in partnership with a firm and directly with select retail merchants. We will work to onboard new partners, further optimize the technology platform, and expand into new verticals. We expect the contribution of new customers from this channel to continue building, and we are experiencing progressively stronger conversion into our other lending products. Our second major initiative will be to launch and begin optimizing our direct-to-consumer auto-secured loan product. We estimate that there is over 13 billion of non-prime auto loan originations annually, and we think there is an opportunity to create a better car financing experience for these consumers. By allowing them to get pre-approved for financing and then guiding them to a network of pre-screened dealers or online auto inventory, we will seek to give the customer more control and a less stressful and confusing car buying journey. Further, we can allow customers with existing vehicles to provide them as security, leading to a larger loan and a lower interest rate. We plan to issue our first auto loan by the end of the second quarter, then use our test and learn philosophy to trial and optimize the product before we begin to scale it up. Third, we remain on track to launch our new cloud-based core lending platform we've named Fusion. We believe new technologies allow us to innovate, improve our customer experience, and operate more flexibly. The introduction of a best-in-class, fully cloud-based SaaS lending solution will provide us with the platform to scale the enterprise for many years into the future. We expect to complete the configuration and migration to the new platform for testing and rollout over the course of the summer months. Lastly, while our published forecasts only contemplate the organic growth of our business, with our multi-product, omni-channel lending platform, and a very well-capitalized balance sheet, we will continue to seek strategic acquisition opportunities that can drive revenue synergies, earnings accretion, and long-term value to shareholders. So with 2020 now well underway, our portfolio is continuing to perform well. Although the second wave of the pandemic meant the return of stay-at-home orders, many of those restrictions have already begun to ease. 
With sales volume steadily building, we expect to grow the consumer loan portfolio during the first quarter between 25 and 40 million. We expect the total yield generated on the loan portfolio to step down slightly to between 44 and 45 percent in the first quarter, then step back up slightly in Q2. In turning to credit, we continue to expect credit losses to gradually normalize to the long-term rates provided earlier. However, our consumer payment and default trends continue to perform very well in the meantime. Based on the current collection, repayment, and delinquency trends, we would expect our net charge-off rate in the first quarter to finish between 9 and 10 percent. In closing, I want to thank our customers, our business partners, and our 2,000 passionate team members that are inspired to help everyday Canadians improve their credit and get back to prime rates. After one of the most challenging years and generations for much of the world, we are grateful to be building such a strong and resilient business that serves a critical need in our financial system. The fundamentals of our business and the confidence in our strategy are stronger than ever. With those comments complete, we will now open the call for questions. Ladies and gentlemen, as a reminder to ask a question on the phone line, please press the star then the one key on your touchdown telephone. You may remove yourself from the queue at any time by pressing the pound key. Again, to ask a question, please press star one. Please stand by while we compile the Q&A roster. Now, first question coming from the line of Gary Ho uh, with Dr. Jones Capital. Your line is open. Thanks and good morning. Um, maybe first questions for Jason Mullins. Uh, can, can you give us an update on that auto loan product launch and the other one that you mentioned, the point sale expansion, uh, as well as, you know, how much of these um, is attributable to the loan book growth for 21 and 22? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, Gary. Um, so as we've done in the past, once we have communicated and plan to proceed with the launch of a product, we do assume some contribution from those new products uh, once they're being prepared to be launched in our plans. However, uh, as you also know, we use a fairly methodical test and learn strategy where we're much more conservative and modest about our growth expectations, particularly in the early years. Uh, so we've got some assumption embedded into these forecasts, uh, but we've certainly not been aggressive with how much we expect to come from a brand new product that still is, is to be trialed and, and learned from. Um, as I suggested, we're, we're uh, well on track to having the product uh, live and test by the end of the second quarter, so we'll be doing at least some lending of that product by then. Uh, I suspect that from our past experience with new product launches, it'll be quite slow for at least the first six to 12 months uh, relative to the size of our book, that is. Uh, well, we uh, tweak and adjust and, and learn about the experience, and then we'll be able to make it more meaningful, hopefully, in the following years. Uh, point of sale is a little bit different. We're already, you know, well, well tested there, so we're moving much more quickly. Uh, I think the thing to note about a point of sale that was highlighted, I believe, um, in the last quarter as well, was the average loan size of that point of sale loan is often very small, much, much smaller than our other products. And so, uh, as we noted, it, it contributes quite a healthy proportion of new customers. It just doesn't necessarily show up as a big dollar originations or big loan book. It really shows up in the assumptions for the growth of these other products as those customers often convert into uh, other loans. So that's how we that's how we build the plan. Got it. That's, that's helpful. And then the other one on M&A that you just mentioned, what are you seeing in the landscape 
um, anything that's that's interesting. And our valuation is still reasonable on targets that uh, that you're targeting today. Yeah, so, I mean, we've continued to keep our eyes and ears open. Um, we know we've got a very uh, focused strategy for what we would consider uh, in that it has to be complementary, has to be strategic, has to be something that would allow us to leverage our platform, uh, has to be something that would allow for revenue synergies. We're not looking to just, you know, cut some back office costs and merge another business uh, of a similar nature. We're looking for something that we can actually you know, cross-sell and drive and drive real revenue synergies too. Um, there, you know, there are opportunities out there, uh, but like we said before, we we remain you know quite disciplined about making sure it's the right opportunity and we're paying the right price and it's truly accretive uh, to our business. And so, as you noted, with valuations being higher, it just requires that much more work and that much more discipline to make sure that if you are going to pursue an investment uh, through an acquisition, that it's absolutely the right deal. So. Continue to keep our eyes and ears open. Um, there's some, you know, choices in Canada. I'll be there more limited. And as we said in the past, we're also always keeping our eyes open for something that could be very strategic potentially in another market as well. So we'll continue to keep everybody posted as we um, as we move forward. Okay, perfect. And then um, the next question is made for Jason Nepal. Uh, just on the three scenario model that you use for assessing your allowance, uh, can you walk me through whether there were changes in the probability weights in the quarter, so from Q3 to Q4? And second, you know, what are the indicators you need to see to move to a more neutral or optimistic um, bucket? Yep, uh, great question, Gary, thanks. Uh, so, I mean, part of the fundamentals of how the provision uses the information has not changed. I think it's just important to ground and produce a baseline in that respect. We still uh, rely on the four macroeconomic indicators of changes in unemployment, inflation, GDP, and oil. Um, and we feed those quarterly forecasts now through a, a series of models that then we wait, as you've indicated. In terms of whether or not the weighting moved from quarter to quarter, uh, I would say the, the weighting changes were very modest. Uh, we tend to maintain a fairly conservative slant, as you would appreciate, toward the future loan loss provision, if only because we're not out of the pandemic. Uh, we're in the middle of a second wave. The prospect of a third wave is still upon us. And as a result, we made very modest changes to the weightings, and that's primarily the main reason why the overall provision rate didn't substantively move. It only moved five bits quarter on quarter. And I'd say that as we start to emerge out of this second wave, and hopefully if there's not a third wave, by all other things being equal, we would expect the provision to start to improve with time, and that improvement would likely be gradual as we uh, continue to normalize our loss performance. So bottom line, while overall weightings did not change appreciably, only modestly, uh, and we continue to keep a very close eye on that as we head into the next quarter. Okay, great, that's helpful. And then if I can sneak one more in, uh, Hal, thanks for the new uh, free cash flow metric. Just curious, the $211 million for 2020, uh, why would that number be the same for fiscal 21? And when I look at your three-year outlook, wouldn't that slightly increase given the, the higher loan book? Can you kind of walk me through the puts and takes? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's really a, a product of the, uh, the cash flow that's being generated on the, uh, on the book, Gary. And, uh, you know, the payments, the payments that we're experiencing on the book continue to be quite strong. Um, the, 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 uh, the premise on this one here in terms of that key statistic is that it actually incorporates uh, a view uh, prior to issuance of uh, 
uh, new new gross receivables. So you've got to contemplate that effectively as a flat uh, growth trajectory as well in those numbers. Yeah, Garrett, I would just I would add to that in terms of looking at it on a on a year on year basis. Um, 2020, as you know, was void by the fact that we had uh, an unusually lower level of loan losses. Uh, you know, a full a full point or so below the commercial forecast we've provided. Uh, we also, uh, as you know, spent less on marketing and advertising because there was periods of time with less consumer demand. So as you think about this year where we're going to be more ambitious about growth and making more investment in the business to fuel that growth, that just means that the rate of growth of the actual operating cash flow from the business doesn't step up as much uh, in comparison to the prior year. So it's a little bit more of 2020 being a little bit more abnormally inflated from the strong cash generation due to lower growth, uh, as opposed to uh, any you know change in the in the performance of the business. Okay, perfect. Okay, those are my questions. Thank you. Now, next question coming from the line of it's in Richard with BMO Capital. Your line is open. Hey, good morning. Uh, first good morning. question on. On, on credit quality, um, could you provide an update on how your underwriting standards have changed since the start of the pandemic and, you know, sequentially uh, during the last quarter? And what percentage of the portfolio has been uh, originated since March of last year? Attendance, Jason, I can take that one. Um, if I think about the, the changes we've made on the underwriting front, uh, those have been dynamically changing now since back in March where we modify the degree of, of supporting documentation and validation that we do all the way down to an industry sector level. So for example, as you can appreciate, just to take one, uh, certain industries particularly affected by travel, uh, we are obviously much more stringent when it comes to our approvals and the type of information and support levels we would see in order to grant a loan or an increase on top of an existing loan. And as various provinces or even regions within provinces have moved into various forms of lockdown, we have tailored those underwriting protocols at the industry sector level uh, within those regions, depending on the severity of those lockdowns. And that would really be a function more of the types of businesses, whether or not they were closed outright, available for things like curbside pickup, uh, available for things where their capacity limits would allow. And like I said, we have those varying now uh, by province, and in some cases, uh, to take Ontario as an example, within various regions, within provinces at various levels. Uh, to answer your second question, in terms of the percentage of the book that's been originated uh, since last year, uh, that number probably sits at about 65 to 70%, give or take a few percentage points. Uh, that's obviously owing to the fact that we've seen uh, a robust improvement in overall consumer demand. And as, we, uh, as we've made uh, no, uh, no uh, uh, surprise of the fact that we obviously relend to existing customers where their circumstances warrant and their credit is appropriate. Uh, so the combination of both new customer growth through POS as, a, as well as existing lending growth with our existing customers has turned about 65% of our origination since uh, the start of last year. And Tim, I would just I would add to that. I think, um, you know, trying to maybe uh, understand your question a little deeper and, and, and sort of what are some of the drivers that cause the credit quality of the book to be better coming out versus going in. Uh, the way to think about it is there's a few, a few dynamics that are at play here. As the loan portfolio has turned over during that period that Jason described, because we've had much tighter 
employment verification underwriting in place, the, the remaining book that we now have is going to sit largely in the hands of the consumers that are in the most stable jobs and in the most stable industries where they experience the least amount of potential unemployment uh, simply because all of those areas that were more exposed we were not lending to during that period because we were more cautious based on their industry sectors. So that's one reason. Uh, the second reason is that over the course of an economic downturn, prime lenders almost always tighten their credit criteria, which means the credit quality of the customers that you bring in, if you look at them by mix of credit quality, usually are uh, progressively better during an economic downturn such that when you exit it, the overall credit quality of the customer in the book is also uh, better. And, and, and we've seen that in the past when we look at historical uh, recessionary events in our peer group that the losses usually in the years subsequent to a recession are usually quite strong thanks to that turnover in the portfolio and the credit quality. So those are some of the factors as to why as you turn over that portfolio during a period where you're being tighter on credit quality, as are your prime lenders that sit above you in the spectrum, the, the non-prime lenders portfolio overall tends to improve. Right. Appreciate, appreciate the details. Uh, coming back on the auto lending opportunity, I'm, I'm wondering how much overlap is there between your average unsecured borrower and the target market you have in, um, you know, for, for, for auto loans, and, and how, how easy or more complicated could that make marketing for, uh, for you? Yeah, so um, we don't have we don't have absolute perfect data, but we we estimate that between seventy to eighty percent of our customers have cars and and uh, have car financing at a given point in time. So the way we think about this product is 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 it's a very very natural extension of our suite because as far as potential new products are concerned, it's really the next one in line where the existing customer that we market and service and acquire uh, is going to be most commonly uh, using. So um, I don't think we're going to see a, a, a ton of cannibalization, if you will. Uh, customers, like I said, that come to us for those other products still finance their vehicles separate and distinct from the other products they borrow from us. Inevitably, there will be some level. Uh, you know, presumably there are, are some customers who may borrow an unsecured loan from us and, and, and uh, did use it to go buy a vehicle, for example, or a private sale uh, car. So that we think there will be a little bit, but we think it's, it's fairly minor just because of what we know about our existing customers that hold those other products and their propensity to still finance cars. So, and the second part of your question around marketing, you know, we're going to continue to drive forward our strategy of promoting our business as a full suite financial institution, uh, promoting it no differently than a bank would uh, promote their business to a prime borrower, which is that we are a lending institution uh, where you can come for access to any of your borrowing needs. Um, what's a little bit unique and different about this product is that the market and the consumer is most often familiar with uh, getting their auto financing when they go to the dealer to go shopping. So the subtle nuance here is that we will be in our marketing campaigns promoting the fact that you can come get pre-approved for your financing and then go buy your vehicle, and that will put you in a better position. Uh, you have more time to consider the financing transaction, more time to consider which vehicle you buy, more choice as to where you buy it from, more ability to negotiate the best deal for yourself, 
uh, or ability to neglect taking add-ons that you don't necessarily want from the dealer. Um, so we're really just trying to transform the experience of the, the non-prime borrower. It's a little, a little more uh, appropriate for their circumstances. And so it's just a matter of continuing that strategy of promoting our entire range of products um, as we build out that full-suite financial institution concept. All right, perfect. Uh, one last question on my end. Uh, you know, from, from an industry perspective, it seems that installment lending has outpaced, um, you know, credit cards, for example, or, or lines of credit. So I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on, 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 you know, the different drivers of this trend um, as, to, as to why installment loans are gaining traction relative to, to other options. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'll tell you. I'll tell you some of some of what we think um, is is behind that. So, um, what we've seen is a couple things. One, some of that installment uh, loan trend uh, relative to the other revolving products has been driven by the rapid growth in the buy now, pay later point of sale finance market. If you look at that particular form of financing, those uh, industry participants like a firm, like a pay right, that have offered a installment product, a pay-as-you-go, uh, buy-now-pay-later program, have had in that subsector uh, the greatest growth and success uh, globally, uh, and especially within North, North America, uh, for the last uh, number of years. So that's a big driver of installment. Uh, when we look at the uh, demographics of the customer, the uh, younger demographic uh, tends to prefer installment products as opposed to revolving products. We've seen that in surveys we've done that they have a bias towards uh, fixed payments where they can build uh, an easier to manage budget. Uh, and they have a lot of fear of having uh, the risk of getting trapped into a cycle of debt from the attractiveness and appeal of a minimum payment on a credit card. So uh, it's not that credit cards and revolving products uh, don't still serve a key purpose. Uh, they do, and they may be in the future of our product suite uh, part of that offering for certain customers, uh, but by and large, I think a combination of uh, point of sale and demography uh, have driven more of an appetite towards installment. Um, the last thing I would add is that the other kind of just overall consumer trend that, that I think we've all seen uh, is, is the subscription uh, model. Uh, we've seen it in... Um, television, seen it in uh, radio, seen it in fitness. And so the consumer is progressively becoming more conditioned to the idea of simply putting all of their life's obligations on regular and frequent installments that they can build into their, uh, into their budget. So I think you also end up with some of the cause of the trend being a byproduct of what they experience in the other parts of their life outside of their purely financial transactions uh, by way of those subscription trends as well. So those would be some of the things we think are part of the drivers behind what creates a different trend for installment than perhaps, say, some of the other products. Just to, just to add to that, Etienne, it's Jason, I think the other thing we would add is that uh, installment products offer a certain degree of predictability when it comes to payment certainty. It's not that you can't get that on credit cards, but credit cards don't force you to pay anything other than the minimum payment, which is often a very, very small fraction of what is actually outstanding. The beauty of an installment product is, is it obligates the customer to a fixed payment that progressively pays down the load within a uh, periodic duration of time, 
whereas in revolving products, be they credit cards or line of credit, while they give the customer tremendous flexibility and serve a purpose, they don't necessarily enforce a certain payment type or frequency. And for the consumer who's in some cases caught off guard and not in a position to have full control over their finances, that's where that product can sometimes lead them astray and put them in that so-called cycle of debt. And I think under the current circumstances, having that finite fixed payment set up for them in an installment type product has just that much more appeal in the, under the current circumstances. So I would just have you think on that one as well. Perfect. Thank you for your comments. Now, next question coming from the line of Stephen Bolan with Raymond James. Your line is open. Uh, morning, everyone. Just uh, two quick questions. The, the first one is just on the, the loan protection plan. Um, your partner, I, I just I guess I'm trying to get an idea of the, the tenure of your partnership with the insurance company because obviously it's been a difficult year for them in terms of paying out claims, and I, I believe it comes out of a, sort of a shared pool. But, um, I mean, is there any renegotiation anticipated there, or, or is that – uh, an annual policy or a multi-year policy that you have or an agreement with them? Uh, yeah, so it's a it's a multi-year agreement. Um, uh, we still have uh, some time left on that agreement, and we uh, regularly speak to our partner about the uh, renewal of those uh, programs. The relationship is incredibly strong. Uh, the insurer is doing incredibly well. Uh, if you look at the latest uh, quarter and annual financial release by Assurance, uh, they saw a substantial increase in overall profitability in 2020 uh, to the extent that they were very active themselves with dividends and buybacks and uh, other, other things of that nature. So they're in finan uh, financially very sound. Um, our, our program is built with the uh, expectation and anticipation that it's going to be a long-term arrangement and that within that long-term arrangement, there will inevitably be some type of economic shock or event that is likely to cause periodic pressure on unemployment, but that's overall expected and therefore embedded into the commercial terms. Um, as of all of the conversations we've had with them progressively throughout this entire period, uh, at no point have they or we felt there's any need to change pricing uh, or nor have they or we felt there's any need to not renew and extend our agreement with them when it does come up for its next renewal. So uh, we feel very confident in that partnership and that program, and it is really well built to be quite uh, resilient through events like this. Okay. That's good news. And, and uh, just going back to the auto loan product, I know it hasn't been launched yet, but I, I understand the front end of, of the program. I guess the, the part I uh, like a little bit more information on is, you know, what if there is a delinquency uh, after the person purchases the car or there is, you know, even a, a, you know, a default where they're not paying you back at all? Do you have recourse to repossessing the, you know, the vehicle or what's, what's the back end of, of, of the product, I guess? Yeah, um, so uh, we would follow a very typical servicing arrangement. So once the customers purchase the vehicle, as you've noted, we would, uh, register a, a lien on that vehicle so that it does act as security. Uh, in the event we're unable to uh, work with the customer to find a appropriate way for them to handle any type of financial challenge they run into, then they have the opportunity to surrender the vehicle and surrender the security, possibly have it sold and be able to move themselves into 
uh, another vehicle. Uh, and in the most unfortunate circumstances, it does potentially require that we actually have to recoup the vehicle. Um, much like we do with our unsecured legal practice, our uh, home equity secured uh, uh, recovery practices, you know, we employ a, a, a very uh, customer-centric uh, model. Uh, we don't, in this example, intend to put, uh, uh, you know, switches in vehicles that will turn them off or those kinds of things. Uh, just like on our home equity product, we very, very, very rarely uh, ever have to actually go do a foreclosure or a power of sale on a property. Uh, we have found that we're usually quite successful in working with the customer to find an arrangement that is suitable, but the reality is is that there are times where you have to exercise on your rights to the security and you will have to uh, recollect a vehicle from the customer. Having said that, what I would say is having, having done collections in, on secured products like this um, uh, for a long time, the vast majority of the time, uh, you know, the customer is quite cooperative and voluntary in uh, surrendering, if you will, the security that's been pledged on a loan product. Um, it, it is, you know, they're, they're, it, it's more it's more cooperative than, than often people might think it would be, but uh, but it does it does happen. Okay, and will that lien be put on at, at the time of purchase? I mean, they buy it one day and it, it gets they sell it the next day and take the cash and not pay you back. Like, is is that part of the? Will that be done up front, or if the person goes into delinquency? Yeah, no. The the lien on the on the asset is put on it right up front, so they won't be able to you know change ownership of the vehicle based on on uh, a lien that we've applied. So um, as soon as it's purchased, it would be just just like the way the car, same same from that perspective car buying experience that that any of us would have uh, have had in the past, which is at the time that you are buying the vehicle, if you are using financing to make the purchase, then there is a uh, a lien applied on the vehicle at the time that the ownership is transferred. Okay, that's good color. Thanks, Jason. And as a reminder, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star one. Our next question coming from the line of Jamie Glowen with National Bank. A uh, bank, your line is open. Yeah, thanks. Uh, first question is related to the uh, advertising spend in the in the quarter. And uh, if you could talk about uh, how you're approaching advertising in the uh, in the upcoming quarters, uh, should we expect to see a little bit higher there? Um, and what does this say about uh, customer acquisition costs in uh, in this environment? Are you seeing any any shifts in uh, in in that aspect of the business? Yeah, sure. Um, so. Um, as noted in the prepared remarks, uh, we intend to spend approximately 4% over the course of the year of our revenues on, on uh, marketing and advertising. That's pretty consistent uh, for the most part with the past. Um, we'll obviously uh, choose to increase that discretionary expense at times if we think it's worth spending additional marketing dollars because we believe there is further demand we can capture uh, at a good cost of acquisition that generates a sufficient return. The, uh, the, the pace of that advertising spend will look fairly similar to uh, past years in which we generally tend to spend more in the second and fourth quarters uh, as the spring and holiday season uh, tend to be when we see demand uh, 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 spike. And then the softer level of spend in the first and third quarters, particularly the, the first quarter this year given, given the, uh, the current uh, pandemic environment. Um, 
And ultimately, when demand is lower, your cost of acquisition is higher unless you choose to just spend less and accept less growth. Uh, so naturally, uh, you know, at the moment when we're dealing with a lower level of overall demand, it's that much more important we get our ads and our, uh, our brand in front of the eyeballs of the consumers that do need access to credit. And so often we are willing to pay a little more to get a customer at that, at that moment in time. We're in a fortunate position where uh, we've got a healthy lifetime value. We can, we can afford to periodically spend a little more to get a customer. Um, and we know very much what each loan and each customer is worth to us. So we're able to self-impose our own guardrails as to how much it makes sense to spend to acquire a customer uh, in order to still remain appropriately profitable and generate an appropriate return. Uh, I suspect that if you think about our commentary on the forecast, um, we should hopefully see that as we hit the second quarter and the spring months, there will be a combination of uh, the benefit of lockdown measures, there'll be a combination of the benefit of uh, warming weather, and hopefully if things fall through, the benefit of a progressive distribution of the vaccine, and we should see demand and, and growth really start to pick up in a more meaningful manner at that time. And if it, you know, prolongs, then it might be closer to summer before we see that. It's hard to predict, but um, we've tried to create a set of projections that we think have some guardrails and, and some boundaries that hopefully adequately capture uh, the varying potential scenarios that we might see un unfold with respect to uh, demand. Great. And then uh, with respect to the, the point of sale and, and buy now, pay later uh, markets, um, when do you expect you'll be in a position to, to or can you disclose the, the share of the total book today, share of originations, uh, what, you're, what you're baking into your forecast with respect to point of sale uh, and buy now, pay later with, uh, with the relationship with the firm? And is there... Is there anything uh, with respect to uh, U.S.-based originations that's baked into the forecast at this point, given that relationship? Yeah, great question. So, um, so we we have not yet and don't have any near-term plan to break out origination dollars or the consumer loan book uh, at that level. Um, however, there's a couple reasons for for doing that beyond just the the normal answer of it, you know, being more disclosure and, and more for our competitors to, to pry at. Uh, beyond that, the other uh, primary reasons is that I don't think it necessarily is incredibly instructive. Um, we, we have disclosed, as mentioned in the prepared remarks, that about 20% or so of our co new customers we acquire are coming from point of sale. Uh, so that's a very important and helpful reference point, I think. Uh, we've disclosed that of our point-of-sale business, uh, the mix between what we do through our partnership with the firm and what we do directly with other merchants and, and other uh, verticals that they may not be in uh, is pretty proportionately split. Um, so we've shared that as well. The reason it's not necessarily super instructive beyond that is that today when a customer takes a point-of-sale loan, we then offer them shortly thereafter those other products. And so in some cases you have a customer who is taking a very small point-of-sale loan, and then within a, a few months, sometimes even a few days, uh, they are retiring that loan and converting over into another product. And, uh, and therefore, the origination dollars and the consumer loan book on that point-of-sale product would appear uh, very inconsequential. However, that acted as a very meaningful uh, source of customer acquisition. So uh, 
probably continue to as this channel builds, progressively provide, you know, incrementally more information that helps helps people understand how it's going. But but those are some of the reasons why we've sort of chosen to provide what we've provided so far. Um, and, and as I said before, it is embedded into our assumptions that it will continue to grow and expand. Uh, but we think we've been very reasonable with those assumptions. Uh, to the last part of your question, no, we have not embedded in an assumption for any growth uh, uh, outside of Canada, uh, nor any, any acquisition assumptions for that, for that matter. Uh, we're early days in working with a firm as a new partner. Things are going well. We hope to continue to build that relationship. And certainly in the event we were to go to another market, um, you know, they, they would be a great partner to, to perhaps work with in other countries as well. And we know that they've got an ambitious international growth plan. Canada was their first uh, uh, first acquisition in an international market. Uh, they plan to go into uh, other countries, and including expansion into Europe. And so, you know, that, that partnership obviously then will just lend itself well for those opportunities down the road. Okay, great. Uh, just one quick follow-up. The, the customers that are acquired through the point-of-sale channel, do you, what, what level of conversion is, uh, is typical that you've experienced so far in, uh, in that channel? So what, what we're seeing is that over the course of a year, we would expect about a quarter to a third of them to convert into at least one other product. Great. Thank you very much. I'm showing no further questions at this time. I will now like to turn the call back over to our speakers for any closing remarks. All right. Thanks, everyone. Well, if there's uh, no formal questions, we appreciate you joining the call today, and we look forward to updating you on our next quarterly release when we release Q1 results in May. Have a fantastic day, everyone. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that doesn't our conference for today. Thank you for your participation. You may all disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.